Welcome to this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast. I'm Katie Mulligan, Editor-in-Chief of ACG's magazine, Middle Market Growth. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Randy Schwimmer, co-head of senior lending at Churchill Asset Management. Randy is also the founder and publisher of The Lead Left. We're going to talk today about his observations around the state of private credit, how Churchill has managed its portfolio since the start of the pandemic, and his outlook for the future. Randy, thanks for joining me. Katie, it's great to be with you. Let's start with inflation. You've been talking to a lot of people about this and writing about it for the lead left. And there's, of course, a lot of public debate about whether this is just a transitory phenomenon as part of the COVID rebound or a pattern that's going to stay with us. Where do you come down in that debate, whether this is a, a blip or something more enduring? Oh, well, Katie, first of all, I'm not an economist, so I uh, always say right up front that, uh, you know, what I do is I talk to to, uh, really smart economists and other uh, market observers to get a sense for what's going on out there. Uh, Just to name one, Brian Nick, who is Naveen's chief investment strategist, has been very, very helpful uh, in helping guide uh, me and obviously our firm in terms of what's going on there in, in terms of inflation. I think that the consensus seems to be that this transitory nature is result um, in large part from the rebound, you know, from a very low point that we were at in the first quarter. Uh, and if you do look at some of the statistics, it seems like at least half and maybe more of the growth that we're seeing has been from the very low point that the you know, retailers, the restaurants, um, consumer-facing businesses were at in that first quarter and now coming back over, over the last several quarters. Um, I would also say that, you know, we, we've uh, forgotten how sluggish growth was in, you know, that 2018-2019 period. I mean, there was a lot of debate about, uh, as you recall, political debate about, you know, the Fed not doing enough to stimulate growth. Um, and I, I actually went back and looked at the statistics and 2019, for all of 2019, uh, GDP growth was only barely above 2%. Um, and and uh, to get anything more than that, you have to get, go back to the first quarter of 2018 when growth was about 3.8% for the first quarter. Um, and so really for, for a couple of years, you were seeing what felt like an airplane trying to, to get lift and trying to take off. Uh, and so people forget how sluggish growth was back then. You actually have to go back, believe it or not, um, seven years to see real GDP that was anywhere near 5%. So I went back, it was actually 2014 when, when we had a couple quarters that were around that 5% range. And so think about, think about how long it's been since, since we've had real growth. And so now when we've seen this rebound, it mimics that kind of growth that we had in 2014. But really, I think, a big part of that uh, is is just kind of the cork coming out of the bottle, so to speak, and a lot of pent up consumerism uh, that's displaying itself in the numbers that we're seeing. I'd also say that you know the bond market uh, has been basically pricing in what looks like you know two percent ish forward inflation. So so you know the smart investors don't seem to be that uh, spooked at all about uh, the inflation numbers that have been coming out over the last couple of months. Signs of rising prices have prompted the Fed to suggest it may raise rates sooner than expected. What impact could inflationary pressure and rising interest rates have on the private credit asset class? 
Yeah, and Katie, our conversation is very timely because the Fed is actually meeting as we speak. So I think it's important, and this is an education for myself as well, as we've been writing the uh, the columns for the lead left. But you know, the education uh, regarding the distinction between reflation, where we've basically seen uh, prices that were very low as they were in the, in the first quarter of last year, and just growing as a result of just growth in the economy, as opposed to the classic inflationary concerns where you have long-term systemic uh, differences between supply and demand of products and services, which, um, you know, in a real way, we haven't seen since the 70s, right? I mean, it's been 40 years uh, when most economists were in grade school when all that was happening. And so now it, it's a little bit unfamiliar, but I think to, to call this inflation um, rather than reflation, which is really what it's been, is just to kind of grow uh, through economic growth as, as well as just improvement of, of the overall performance of commercial activity is actually, people forget that's actually a good thing. We're coming from the worst, you know, d- drop off in the first quarter uh, in, in many, many years. And I was looking it up in, in the case of the UK, um, not since 1709, the great freeze of, of uh, 1709. So it's 300 years um, plus have they had, um, you know, as bad a, a downturn as they did in the, in the first quarter. And so this is, you know, people forget we can't, we've come back from a, um, a real down uh, swing. And so I think economic growth is good. Um, you know, this reflation is good for businesses. You know, people have been longing to get prices up, labor, you know, uh, wages to get wages up and pay people more, um, particularly, again, thinking about where we were a year and a half ago. And so I think as that happens, I think the increase in rates is a natural thing. It's a byproduct of, of growth, which is good for investors. You know, we, we're still kind of suffering. If you look at the short term, you know, short term like LIBOR is, it's, it barely registers at like 0.13% or something like that. Um, and even the 10-year, 10-year uh, treasury, you know, it was starting to head up there, you know, uh, one and a half, 1.6, 1.7. And then it kind of slipped back as I think investors realized that, you know, that this was not going to be anything more than transitory. So I actually think that private credit, which is, you know, certainly on the direct lending side for us um, and generally for senior debt, is it's a floating rate asset class. So we like the fact that interest rates are headed up. We haven't really seen a, a re- rising rate environment for, for many years. Um, and uh, so I think that's that overall backdrop is gonna be very good for, for borrowers. I think it's gonna be good for investors and overall, I think very good for, uh, for private credit. I've heard you speak in other interviews and at events about the defensive posture that Churchill took heading into the COVID crisis by investing in industries like healthcare, for example. Are you still in that defensive mode or has the recovery led you to expand your activity in industries that Churchill was maybe staying away from or or where it was at least less active leading up to 2020? Yeah, that's a great question, Katie. And I think I would say it's not so much a defensive posture as an all-weather uh, posture. We we have been, you know, we have the same have had the same credit discipline at Churchill um, in you know in our 15-year existence. We knew uh, based on our experience because you know we've been doing middle market uh, lending for a long, long time. We knew that in downturns, that consumer-facing businesses, cyclical industries were going to 
take the, the worst of the pounding. And so we've always sort of thought about uh, the world as the have and have nots and the haves are the businesses that are more counter cyclical or less cyclical, more defensive industries like healthcare, technology, software, uh, business services, that kind of thing. And less related to, uh, you know, chemicals and commodities and certainly real estate and energy and things like that. And even really trying, being very careful about high cost brand, uh, consumer brand businesses, which really took a pounding uh, during the Great Recession. And so we learned a lot from that. And we've been in the same kind of discipline mode that whole period. We didn't know when the, the, the latest downturn would happen. We didn't know how it would happen or what would cause it. But we were ready when it when it did, and sure enough, when it did, you know our our portfolios, uh, portfolio companies uh, did fine, and we had no defaults or losses uh, related to COVID through that whole period, and that that remains the case today. And I think that ultimately, what why we do that is that we want to have because our investors want to have consistent returns through all the cycles. They don't want to worry about timing, you know, and calling us up and saying, is the recession coming? Is it over? What's going on? They want to know that no matter what happens, no matter what the cycle, no matter what the inflation rate is, what interest rates are doing, what whatever the headlines, that we created a portfolio that, as I say, is kind of all weather and will do well in any cycle. And I think, you know, sticking to the industries that I mentioned uh, has really allowed us to do that. A private equity sponsor recently described 2021 to me as three years worth of deal flow in one. There's catch up from last year, then there's this year's deals, and then there's transactions to get ahead of a potential capital gains tax hike. How has that acceleration in M&A activity affected the private credit world? That's a good observation by that individual because what, what has happened increasingly of late is that the velocity of cycles has really increased. Things happen so quickly. Um, investors are plugged in real time to what's going on. And so, you know, they, they uh, and the markets overall uh, react very quickly to, to what happens. And you'll see when the Fed comes out with their minutes from their meetings that, you know, you'll have instant reactions, headlines um, to whatever minute language they, uh, alterations they, they come out with with their release uh, press releases, but I think that um, the good news about private capital uh, is that we are in a closed. I call it a closed system. So if you compare it to the public credit markets and, and even public equities, where everything is an open system, so fund flows, retail money comes in and out of funds at a, at a drop of a hat. You know if bad headlines come out and people don't like, you know, bonds, they come out of bonds that week and there's billions of dollars that flows out. And the next week, if for whatever reason they like the headlines then billions of dollars go flowing back in. Private credit is, is really, private capital in general is really long-term assets that are matched with long-term liabilities. And the beauty of that is that this long-term capital, which is invested in both private credit funds and private equity funds, is locked in for a period of time because these investors want to know over a long period of time they can get the kind of returns that they're looking for from both private credit and private equity and not have to worry, as I mentioned before, about what's going on with the Dow or what's going on with gas prices or anything like that. And so I think that having this closed system of capital 
uh, which is capital that's been raised by both private equity funds and private credit funds like ourselves, has um, managed over the last you know, five, 10 years to amass what, what right now is over $600 billion in North America of dry powder. Um, now, most of that dry powder is actually dedicated to private equity funds. And so uh, we in the private credit community uh, feel like there's plenty of running room for us because for every you know, $1 that we raise, there's six or $7 being raised by our sponsor clients to, to, to commit capital to. Um, and I think that uh, what's going on now that your friend mentioned is the urgency to put this capital to work. Because as, I, as we started out talking about interest rates, despite all the you know, uh, concern about where they might be headed in the future, right now, you're talking about close to a zero risk-free environment. When you look at treasury rates right now, even the 10-year treasury at you know, 1.5% or whatever it is, you know, and certainly the short-term rates are, are pretty much close to zero. And so investors of all stripes are looking for yield and that's why they're, they're coming to the private markets. Churchill has a number of different capabilities across direct lending and private equity solutions. I'm interested to know whether over the course of the pandemic, whether you saw any shift in demand across the types of capital solutions that you offer and where that stands today. We did. I mean, you know, you mentioned that 2021 seemed like three years worth of deal flow. 2020 was like four different years. <laughs> one, right? You had the first quarter, which was kind of like 2019, you know, uh, at least through the middle of March and then all, you know, heck broke loose. And you ended up in, in a COVID environment. It, things started to come back a little bit in the in the third quarter. Um, you know, we have four pockets of strategies that we deploy out of. Uh, we have a senior debt business. We have a junior capital business. Uh, so that includes mezzanine, second lien, hold co-pick, that kind of thing. Um, and we have a direct co-invest business of equity. So we invest directly equity into, into transactions. Um, and one of the, the, the biggest and I think most fundamental um, distinctions in our strategy is the fourth leg, which is the private equity fund of fund strategy, where we have $10 billion or so of um, committed and closed capital that is actually investing directly into our private equity sponsors funds into the GPs. And so as a limited partner that puts us in a somewhat of a unique position, because not only uh, are we um, a supplier of credit of various stripes, as I mentioned, with those first three legs of the stool. But we're also an, a client or a client of these sponsors by virtue of that fourth leg. And so what, what has happened is all of those four legs to that stool um, get deployed in various ways, depending on what's going on quarter to quarter. And what we found interestingly in the middle of last year was that the mezzanine part, the junior capital part of those uh, strategies we actually became very active in part because Unitronch, which has over the last several years displaced a lot of mezzanine opportunities, certainly at the larger end of the middle market, um, Unitronch started to pull back. Why? Because Unitronch is typically a higher leveraged vehicle, you know, five or six times EBITDA. Well, five or six times EBITDA when EBITDA is a bit uncertain, which it was in the middle of last year becomes more problematic. And so sponsors came to us more frequently for mezzanine solutions as part of their financing choices. Um, it's come back a little bit more in line over the last several quarters as borrowers recognize and sponsors recognize that the, the coast is 
probably clearer than it was last year. Still not 100% out of the woods, but I think uh, right now it feels like all four legs of our, our stool are fully deployed. And, uh, and that's, that is a good feeling. You mentioned earlier just the size of the private capital market and why this is an appealing space for investors. I'm interested to know your outlook for the future and whether you expect that interest to stay high and whether there's anything that could change that. Every indication that we have, particularly coming through successfully the COVID period, right? I mean, it's one thing to say that we have an all-weather portfolio. It's another thing to actually demonstrate it. Uh, and I think that has really turned a number of investors' heads who were hanging around the hoop, you know, in the 2018, 2019 period, waiting to see what was going to happen because everybody knew something was going to, there was going to some sort of shoe, economic shoe was going to drop. And now that it's been, you know, I call it kind of proof of concept, that the proof of concept of private credit has dem- been demonstrated, you know, in the cases of uh, firms like ourselves that had good track records and, and um, experienced management teams. Now it's like all of a sudden with COVID starting to go out of the way, uh, all of a sudden there's a sense that there's t- real tailwinds to the asset class. I actually think, you know, and I was in, in thinking about your questions um, that we were going to talk about, I was thinking that the 2020s could actually end up being the decade of private debt. I believe that the tailwinds, and we talked about them, you know, interest rates, uh, growth and other things um, that benefit middle market companies, uh, we could be at the beginning of a, of a, of a nice cycle you know, for, for those businesses. So I think the asset class, which now has really established itself firmly as a, as a legitimate one with attractive benefits and having gone through several cycles now successfully, you know, weathered the storm well, I think that, you know, we, we actually published a number of pieces called the coming of age of private credit. I actually think that's where we are now. We're in a point where I think investors realize this is a legitimate asset class and I need to somehow figure out a way to participate. So we've talked throughout this conversation about the opportunities and challenges facing the middle market M&A community and, and private capital more broadly. What among those or, or even something we haven't discussed is keeping you up at night these days? I'm always worried. That's just I'm. A, I just I'm a worrier. I'm always thinking about you know have we got this figured out? Have we got that figured out? Uh, I think my CEO Ken Kinsell is is similar in the sense that you know he's running a thirty billion dollar business, which is part of a trillion dollar organization, which is what Nuveen is globally. And so I think you know he uh, he thinks about the same things. You know, I think the biggest thing, and I think he would agree with me, that um, is the most fundamental is managing growth. You know, one of the things that we've discovered over the last year and a half is that our firm has actually grown more during COVID than at any other time in its 15-year history. Um, We've hired, unbelievably, um, 30-plus people during the COVID environment, most of them never We've never met personally. We met them through Zoom and obviously interviewed them. But uh, you know, we have close to 100 people in the firm now. I mean, that's a third of the of the employees that that we haven't met now. Hopefully, by September, we'll start to come back to work and, and meet people. Um, but managing growth, I think, is always a challenge. Now, it turns out our greatest growth um, happened uh, during the worst pandemic in a century. Who would have Who would have thought that? And there are many strategic things that, you know, we can talk about at another time that are going on with our business that are very exciting. 
But I think um, managing that growth is, is probably the biggest challenge for us. Uh, we've, a lot of the hiring has been in, in the back office, you know, focusing on making sure that with all the growth that we've had, that our um, areas such as investor relations and, you know, finance and op, you know, op operations, our underwriting teams are supported to manage this growth. Because at the end of the day, you know, if you can't manage the growth, then you know, you're not going to be successful. So I think that's, I know what keeps Ken up at night and, and probably myself and our other partners as well, but we're doing everything we can to address those issues. Because I think there are opportunities um, to be had. And, um, they're, they're significant ones for the future for, for us and others. What are some of those opportunities that you see ahead in the future for Churchill and, and others in the middle market? Katie, you know I'm a middle market person. I, you know, born and raised in this business, uh, and it's it's been um, a real uh, eye opener, but but very pleasing to see the world really come to the middle market. Because when I started, it was it was kind of a backwater. Nobody thought small deals were fun. Um, people now recognize the importance of it. You know um, better than anybody that the middle market is really the engine for growth. Uh, in the U.S., there are 200,000 companies, I think, that that are designated as middle market businesses, and they provide, I think, it's 70 percent of the growth uh, in terms of new jobs and things like that. If you if you took all those companies and actually created them as a separate country, the middle market would be the third largest GDP in the world, which is an astounding statistic. But I think the the post COVID trends that we've identified and talked about um, in this podcast are gonna benefit those businesses over the next several years. Um, think about how many of those 200,000 companies are actually owned by private equity firms. There are only about 9,000. So the amount of dry powder that's available um, to look at the other you know, 193,000 companies that are not sponsored back, I think is, is incredible. And I would say the other thing is that um, you know, the, the owners and founders of these businesses in many cases are baby boomers who are aging and who are getting to the stage where they may not have a, a natural successor within the family to take over the business. And even if they do, they don't necessarily have the capital to take advantage of these opportunities as, as the, you know, the 2020s move on into what we think is going to be real growth. And so this generational transfer of wealth, which some estimate to be $17 trillion dollars, is going to be happening over the next decade or so, uh, and I think you know, with firms like ourselves and and the private equity firms that are our clients, being in the middle of all that as these businesses change hands, there's going to be a lot of investing and financing that's going to be going on, and a lot of advising to those businesses. So I think, do you think about the exciting opportunities over the next decade that? Uh, that shift of wealth and the, uh, the white space that's available in the middle market for investment is um, is probably the mo- two most exciting things that uh, that I can imagine. We will leave it there for today, but Randy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed the conversation. Katie, it's been great. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a treat. Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. Subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts or Google Play, where you can listen to past episodes and hear the next episode in two weeks. While you're there, we'd love if you could rate the show and leave a review to help other listeners find out about us. 
If you have an idea for a guest or a topic that you'd like to hear on the podcast, we'd love to hear your suggestions. Please email them to editor at acg.org. I'd also encourage you to check out our website, middlemarketgrowth.org, for more content covering the middle market, private capital investment, and trends in middle market M&A.